We have uh, been fortunate the last few weeks to have Joanne Badley with us, and today is her third and final week. We look forward to hearing uh, what the Lord would have her say to us as a a community. Uh, We have two passages of Scripture this morning that will uh, help us enter into uh, the message this morning. The first comes from Psalm 32, verses 1 to 11. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. While I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord." And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you. At a time of distress, the rush of mighty water shall not reach them. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, whose temper must be curbed with bit and bridle, else it will not stay near you. Many are the torments of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Our second reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who he is is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins... Are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, 
Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Joanne. My husband had to prompt me at one point to sit down or stand up. I don't remember which it was because I was watching the children. (laughs) Um, I want you to know that you have a a very good problem (laughs) Um, because you have children that fly around. (laughs) There are lots of churches in Canada that would absolutely um, long to be in your position. Uh, Enjoy them. We have spent the last two weeks thinking about the character of the kingdom of God according to Luke's gospel. We looked at Jesus' exchange with the centurion of Capernaum, and we learned from the centurion about the quality of faith, that faith is really a confidence, perhaps accompanied by humility. And then last week, we learned about the life-giving character of God's kingdom, Jesus raised the son of the widow of Nain and gave him back to his mother. Both weeks, I have suggested that Luke has given us accounts of Jesus' ministry in order to point out the character of God. And so we turn to the last story in chapter 7 in the Gospel of Luke, another story from Jesus' ministry in Galilee. We've heard Joel read the account of Jesus eating with Simon the Pharisee, which is at the end of chapter 7. And this account is much more complicated than either of the other two stories. It's complicated because of Jesus' words at the end. Jesus says that the woman loves much because she has been forgiven much. But we have no account of her sins being forgiven. In fact, after Jesus says that, he turns to her and then he says, your sins are forgiven, that her faith has saved her. Things just seem out of order. And I would suggest that, in fact, it's this out of order character um, of the story that teaches us. It teaches us about the relationship of love forgiveness, and faith. Such important ideas for us as we try to journey on in the following Jesus. But before we begin, let's ask a prayer together. Gracious God, forgiving God, loving God, we thank you for your word by which you have made yourself known. May we come to know you as we look to Jesus. We thank you for the presence of your spirit by which our hearts and minds and lives are transformed. Grant us a true knowledge of yourself that we might grow into your image. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we start into this story, though, um, I want to at least note that the lectionary has actually skipped over a section of Luke's gospel. You always have to be a little bit um, cautious with the lectionary. It's good to follow it and good to notice what it leaves out. (laughs) 
Um, the part that's left out is the account of the disciples of John the Baptist coming to Jesus to ask him if he is the coming one or if they should wait for another. And Jesus responds to these men by saying that they should know that Jesus is the coming one because of the quality of life that Jesus brings. Jesus says to John's disciples, Go and tell John what you have seen. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. Blessed are those who take no offense at me. And this is, I would argue, the primary word of these chapters to John's disciple and to all people everywhere. Know what Jesus is doing and saying in Galilee because it embodies the work of God. The complicated relationship, as I mentioned earlier, is the relationship between love, forgiveness, and faith. And this is what I want to to try and unpack from this story this morning. But the story is really hard to understand because we don't understand the social context in which this story takes place. Our world is very different. And the difference begins with things as simple as the dining room table. We have rectangular or perhaps round dining room tables and we put chairs around them. And then we sit on those chairs and we pass the food around so everybody can eat. The arrangement of people around the table is often irrelevant. It used to be that the sort of the most important person in the room would sit at the head of the table, usually the, the, the man who was the head of the house, perhaps even though a grandparent. But in the ancient world, especially in a Roman dining room, which is probably how Luke imagined this setting, the, Luke, the, the guests were arranged around a U-taped table. Um, that it was close to the ground so that guests would prop themselves on their elbow and then eat with their right hand off the table. As a result, it was a place of honor to be placed at the table so you could lean on your left arm and you would have your right arm to eat with because so many of us, of course, are right-handed. And the food was served in the middle of the U. The servants would come in and serve the people, in a sense, on the opposite side of the table from where they sat. And that helps us, at least initially, to make sense of this particular text. If you remember, the woman comes and is at Jesus' feet. So she's out behind everyone. But I want to say that we also extend hospitality to guests differently. I don't know about what happens at your house when people come, but the first thing I usually do is hang up their coats and then offer them something to drink. This is Western Canada, and so people take off their shoes when they come in, or else you give them permission to leave them on, right? In the ancient world, that's not what happened. <laughs> um, you, when, a, when someone came to your door, when, when you had a guest, you would kiss them in welcome. That's more like Quebec, just saying. <laughs> and they would, would offer their guests water to wash their dusty feet. And then they would offer them oil to freshen their face. I never give anybody oil of Olay when they show up at my house. <laughs> Just saying. 
So after dinner, it was typical to have an extended conversation. That conversation might even have included lively heated exchange between guests, disagreements, and debates. This is also quite different from the Canadian social conventions that lead us to avoid topics where there would be a difference of opinion. When I was growing up, we were specifically told not to talk about religion and politics at get-togethers of my mother's family because there were deep differences of opinion and everyone felt that the expression of difference would mar the event or perhaps prevent family members from coming the next time. My Uncle Merle, who we didn't see for years. But conventions of conversation were not like that in the ancient world. Dinner was an opportunity to explore differences, to challenge people about their opinions, which is exactly what we see in many stories of Jesus at dinner with the Pharisees. This is an example. If we don't know about these differences in how social dinner um, happened, we, we miss the way that Simon's invitation was a genuine invitation to Jesus, even if it was somewhat guarded. We conclude that the Pharisees were such a quarrelsome bunch, rather than interested conversation partners who want to talk to Jesus about topics they all care about deeply. And we really don't know what to do with the arrival of this woman. I never expect outsiders to show up uninvited at my dinner parties. I don't even expect uninvited friends and neighbors to show up, never mind folks that I don't know. But in the ancient world, people who weren't invited to supper might come to hear the debate afterward, especially if that conversation was going to be interesting. And it was also possible that women, even loose women, would be invited to enhance the party. And they would show up later, although probably not by Pharisees. I can think we can assume that this woman was not an invited guest, and yet she showed up. And Luke tells us a little bit about her. She was a woman from the city, a sinner. With this in mind, let's look at the account of, of this Pharisee's dinner party. Seemingly, Jesus is still in the city of Nain, which was really a small town, even though Luke calls it a city. And Simon has asked Jesus to come and eat, and soon after Jesus arrives, the woman shows up. In a small town, everybody knows everybody. So the host and the other guests know who this woman is. To use the phrases of Joel Green, everyone at that table knew that this woman was a prostitute by vocation, a whore by social status, contagious in her impurity, and probably one who fraternized with Gentiles for economic purposes. It is like a serious social disease just showed up. Unlike the Roman centurion, whom we considered two weeks ago, this unclean woman, unclean woman does not keep her distance. In her life, she has transgressed every social boundary, and now she is doing that again, showing up at a Pharisee's dinner party. As Simon says to him, self, 
Jesus should know what sort of woman was touching him, that she was a sinner. But we really don't even know how to evaluate the woman's actions either. Her actions can be understood sexually. They're erotic actions. And this is how the men at Jesus' table have understood them. She has let down her hair. She massages Jesus' feet. She's brought fragrant oil to use. These are the tricks of her trade. And I am so uncomfortable with a lavish display of affection like this. I'm Canadian. I'm I'm of British descent. We are much more reserved than this. I am very uncomfortable with this woman coming in uninvited, lavishly pouring out her love for Jesus in this way. But Jesus doesn't interpret her actions as the other men at the table have done. He interprets her actions as extravagant acts of welcome. She is being hospitable, and Simon was not. He says to Simon, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. The woman has done what Simon ought to have done. She is hospitable to Jesus in ways that Simon ought to have been. And the story reinforces what many of us think about Pharisees. For 2,000 years, we have been hearing stories of how the Pharisees got Jesus all wrong. And so we dislike this Simon the Pharisee right from the start. We begin the story assuming that Simon has it all wrong. Having been raised in the church, I know Pharisees are bad guys. But this is one place that doing careful work in the biblical text has actually changed my opinions. When Luke speaks of Pharisees, he does not caricature them all as hypocritical and enemies of Jesus. Some, like Simon, invite Jesus to eat with them so that they can debate about how Jesus understands faith. They can talk to him about important questions of doctrine, what is holiness, when to expect the kingdom of God. They argue with Jesus about how to live in a holy way, what is acceptable to do on the Sabbath, how to tithe, when to wash. At one point, a Pharisee actually warns Jesus about Herod's hostility. He wants to save Jesus' life. In Acts, Gamaliel, a Pharisee, persuades the Jewish council to release Peter and the other apostles I think it is better to understand Pharisees as people who are very interested in religious questions, as people who have very strong opinions about the answers they have found to their religious questions. Quite frankly, not unlike many of us in North American churches. As well, the Pharisees were sufficiently wealthy that they could afford the time for this kind of debate and discussion. They could afford to live consistently with their faith. 
They were all more or less religious middle-class people. Most people in the ancient Galilee gave all their energies to just getting by, surviving, and they had no time or resources to worry about religious questions, not unlike many in the majority of churches worldwide. The problem with Pharisees is that their opinions about what it meant to be faithful Jews differed so radically from Jesus' opinions. They understood holiness very differently. They understood the kingdom of God differently. They understood the character of God differently. And in their understanding, women like this one belonged outside And I think this is the crux of the story we have read today according to Luke. Who do we think that God is? What is the kingdom of God like? Simon the Pharisee has invited Jesus to eat with him. He wants to talk to Jesus about these very topics. So he has invited this holy man to eat with him to debate these important questions. I know, I expect he knows that he and Jesus have differences of opinion, and he wants to explore those differences. In a word, Simon wonders if Jesus is a prophet. And very quickly, unexpectedly, with the arrival of this woman, Simon has an opportunity to answer his question. Simon expects a prophet to disdain a woman like this, Simon's definition of the life of faith marks this woman as a sinner. With his understanding of a prophet, his understanding of holiness, he expects that Jesus should put this woman off and he should rebuff her ministrations. But Jesus takes advantage of the situation to clarify the character of the kingdom of God Jesus makes clear from woman's actions what God is like. Luke tells us that Jesus receives the lavish demonstrations of love from the woman and goes on to interpret them generously. He receives them not as sexual overtures, but as her extravagant gestures of response to the wideness of God's mercy, to God's forgiveness. God is like the forgiving creditor. Far from putting the woman off, Jesus makes her actions exemplary of the relationship of faith, forgiveness, and love. The woman's confidence, her faith, that Jesus' ministry displays the character of the kingdom, her gratitude for Jesus' willingness to extend the forgiveness of God to tax collectors and sinners, shows up in her display of great love. And in this, she puts Simon, the religious man, to shame. And this is the point of Jesus' parables. She had much to be forgiven, and she loves much. And so we come to the difficult words at the end of the story. In verse 47, Simon, Jesus is speaking to Simon, And he says that on account of the woman's loving actions, because she has kissed him, washed his feet, anointed his feet with perfume, her sins are forgiven. Or is it better to understand that because of these loving actions, 
We know that she is forgiven. Translators go both ways. But then Jesus turns to her and tells her that her sins are forgiven. How do we understand this? I think we need to remember that Luke has told us that Jesus' reputation had spread throughout Galilee. I think this woman comes to Jesus because Jesus' reputation was already widely known. She comes because she believes the picture of the kingdom of God that Jesus has been proclaiming. She is among the poor to whom the good news of God have come. She has been released from captivity. She was oppressed, and now she is free. Jesus' ministry has started the favorable year of the Lord for her. We might say that she comes because she has confidence in what she has heard about God. And Jesus commends her for this confidence at the end of the story. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. If it was her confidence, her faith in him, in his reputation, that brought her to the home of Simon the Pharisee, we could say that the life and teaching of Jesus have given her a new picture of God. This new picture of God encourages her to arrive uninvited at the home of Simon. If so, it is this confidence, this faith, that is the basis of her extravagant expression of love. She is confident that the God Jesus makes known is a God who forgives, who will receive her love. This is not a God who excludes her, as Simon's God does. This is the faith of which her tears and her ointment are an expression. She who was a sinner has been openly received by this God, and she loves openly in return. Jesus' reputation has preceded him to Nain, even as it had to Capernaum, where the centurion sent his friends to seek him out. And the woman has come to pay homage to the man who embodies a welcoming God. This is Jesus' point with the parable. This woman who was a sinner received God's mercy for the hundredfold need that she had. She received the news about the kingdom of God for the word of grace and freedom that it held for her. She embraced God's announcement of the favorable year of the Lord. Simon, on the other hand, though he needed God's mercy less, was unwilling to see in Jesus' life and words the presence of God. He was unwilling to open his eyes to God's mercy, now present in Jesus, to God's forgiveness, now extended to sinners like this women. And this brings us to the relationship of faith, love, and forgiveness. Jesus makes it clear that the woman's love is in contrast to the welcome of Simon. Simon had also heard about the actions of Jesus. Simon had also heard about Jesus' reputation and was curious enough to invite him to eat at his house, house. but he did not welcome him. Simon's response to Jesus made him curious about the man, but he remained hesitant 
about embracing the vision of God that Jesus proclaimed and embodied. It did not line up with what he already knew, with the practices he had received from his tradition. I think this may be the point of the story for us. Simon thinks he understands God. He recognizes that Jesus may be a prophet, may be a holy man. And the presence of the woman, and especially her actions, challenge his presupposition because Jesus allows the woman to touch him. Why would a holy man allow a sinful woman to touch him? He concludes that Jesus must not be a prophet. If this were a prophet, if he were a prophet, he would know that the woman touching him was a sinner. Jesus must be less than a prophet. But Luke has been trying to say through all these early chapters that Jesus is more than a prophet. Luke is proclaiming that in Jesus, God is present in new and powerful ways that challenge how men like Simon have understood salvation. And I think that this story still challenges how we understand salvation. Often we narrow the path of grace to a particular movement through forgiveness to salvation. But in this case, Jesus' Jesus' reputation was good enough to bring the woman to faith, to bring her to love, to bring her to forgiveness. She had heard about Jesus' enactment of the kingdom of God, and she poured out love for him in response. She, who had had no place in the kingdom of God as it had been defined, could now enter the kingdom and find a place at the feet of Jesus. And confidence in being included that she would be welcomed by God brought on her extravagant display of love. She knew that Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And she could love well because she knew this God would welcome her, because she knew Jesus' proclamation of God's kingdom had space for her. The path of salvation for this woman came through the knowledge of God, faith, confidence in the right perspective of God has such a loving result. To be honest, I think this is part of the reason that Pope Francis is so appealing. He embodies a way of Christian faith that people recognize as the way of Jesus. He departs from a way of faith that looked like the faith of Simon the Pharisee. And so we come to the question of how we read ourselves into this story. Are we merely curious about Jesus, like Simon? Or do we see ourselves as the poor, like the woman for whom Jesus' kingdom came as good news? Can we now trust in the Lord that that Jesus proclaims? I think we can tell how we think about the kingdom, how we think about the person of God by looking at how we love. The woman trusted that Jesus would receive her like the centurion trusted and that Jesus would offer life much like he did for the widow. And so she loved extravagantly. The central question is how we understand the God to whom we come. 
And so, like other weeks, that brings me back to the psalm with which, we, uh, with which, uh, which Joel also read for us today. This psalm could have been the woman's confession, and I suggest that we close and make it our confession also. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then from the end, many are the torments of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. May it be so. Amen.